All right, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you remember, uh, this book is not, we're not kind of, we're not as chronological right now as we have been because James is a very difficult book to place and not everybody agrees with its placement uh, as far as the timeline is concerned. Uh, but you know that my belief, as I told you from the evidence inside the book, is that this book was written by James, the half-brother of our Lord, and it was the first book of the New Testament that was written. Uh, it was written during a time frame in which primarily the gospel was going to the Gentiles, uh, yet it was after the time in which Saul had been threatening Christians and they had scattered away from Jerusalem because of it. And so this letter is written to those Jewish Christians who have scattered away from Jerusalem. And they're struggling. They've got a lot of challenges they're facing. They're facing loss of, well, obviously they've lost their homes. They've lost their incomes. In many cases, they have lost their families. They're dealing with persecution. And as a consequence of that, it's really easy for them to kind of pull back uh, and, uh, and, and to look more like the world and act more like the world. And that's supposed to, you know, relieve some of the pressure. And I guess it does, because that's why it's a temptation for us even today as well. Uh, so James writes this book. And one thing that was significant, I mentioned about it being James, the half-brother of our Lord, is that the brothers of Jesus didn't believe he was who he claimed to be, did they? Even during his earthly ministry, they didn't believe it. Uh, and in fact, they have, we have the account where they mock him to send him to Jerusalem to prove who he is, and they don't believe. And it's only after the resurrection that uh, something changes, at least with James, that we know about. So uh, James becomes one of the elders in the church in Jerusalem. He is a prominent figure, uh, and he writes this book. Now, this book is about practical Christianity. It's about how these people who have now scattered out... You know, you know Christians don't live in this building, right? We don't live in this protected environment where we're all together with each other. We live out there in the world where it's dangerous all the time. And, and facing those dangers successfully requires a lot of practical application of what God wants from us. So in this book, he deals with that. He talks about, in chapter 1, they need to learn to even be thankful for the challenges they're facing because it makes them stronger, it gives them wisdom. He talks about it's not good enough to know what God says. You need to become what God asks you to become. You need to do His Word. Chapter 2, he talks about what faith means, and it's not supposed to be uh, you know, prejudiced against each other or... Uh, it's not that the God, you, you can't decide who the gospel is supposed to go to. It goes to anybody. And then he talked about what it means to be faithful. It's not a claim. It's not a belief that God exists. It is a doing what you believe. It is having enough confidence in what you believe to live it. So faith without works then is just like a body that doesn't have a spirit. It's dead. So in chapter 3, which we studied on Sunday, he finished up at least that practical wisdom about uh, about faith by talking about the tongue and the importance of, you know, he talked about teachers, you know, be not many teachers because we'll see the greater judgment. And I told you in the context, I don't think he's talking about a judgment from God. I do believe if you teach error, God's going to judge you for that, obviously. But in this context of this passage, what he's saying is when you stand up and try to encourage others or teach others what God wants you to be, they look at you and they want to know whether you're being honest and truthful in your own life. Are you challenging them to be something that you're not willing to do for yourself? That's what happened with the Pharisees, wasn't it? They put Jesus told them in Matthew 23, you put all kinds of burdens on people, but you won't lift them yourself at all. So they were hypocrites. Okay, well, you can't help other people if you're a hypocrite. 
So he talks about that a little bit, and then he goes on through what it actually is to walk by faith. Now, in chapter 4, he, uh, it's not a long chapter. I mean, we've only got 17 verses to go through. We, we, this was a good night to start a little late. Uh, may get done early anyway. But the interesting thing about chapter 4 is there is a context, just like we've had in every chapter, but this one is kind of broken up. It's like there's a continuous context, and it's like there are individual shots in specific areas that stay in that context. And as we go through it, I'll try to show you what I mean. Chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Now, the reason that this starts, that, uh, this starts kind of challenging is because we don't really know the context yet. We haven't read far enough to figure out what he's talking about. And so what we, we immediately jump to is this idea that what the writer is saying, James is saying, you people are out here and there are problems in the church. You're warring among yourselves in the church. That's not the context of what he's saying. Actually, he should be saying the wars within you. You remember Romans chapter 7? Does anybody know what Romans chapter 7 is about? That's a chapter that I wish everybody would remember. Romans chapter 7. And you go and read it every once in a while because it might encourage you. Romans chapter 7 is when the Apostle Paul is looking at his life in frustration and saying, you know, there are times that I want to do the right thing, but I don't do it. And there are times that I don't want to do the wrong thing, but I do it. And how wicked I am and who can save me from this. And then chapter 8 he says, God, God's the one that can do that. Okay, that's what James is writing about here in James chapter 1. I struggle. They struggle. James is saying the reason you have this war going on inside of you is because you want to fulfill pleasure. Isn't that what the Hebrews writer said about Moses? Where he was? What did he say about when he left? What did he consider? Nobody knows? Not the pleasures of this world? He gave up the pleasures of this world? What was that to him? Egypt, right? The wealth and the power and everything that went along with it. And so that's temptation. Temptation is to take whatever it is that you desire and try to take it to a place that is outside of what God wants it to be. You know, and the simple explanation of that is the intimacy between a husband and wife. That's, some, that's a gift that God has given us. It's a good, holy gift. When does it become wrong? When we take it outside of what God has given us for it. And that's the same thing with everything. God takes these, or the devil takes these things that are good for us, and he makes them a temptation by challenging us to go outside of what God has designed. Well, that's a war. You ever had a struggle in your life? Because you knew what the right thing was to do, but you didn't want to do it. Listen, if you look back on your life, I would venture to say the times in your life where you were most miserable was when you knew how you ought to be living, but you weren't living it. Because deep in your heart, you knew what you were supposed to be, and yet you also knew you were not that, right? The worst way to live is in between. Now, you might as well give it all up and just go and live to your pleasures and just... If that's all you're going to get, you might as well live it, right? You try to stay in the middle, you don't have anything. So he's saying, this is why you war against yourself, because, because of your temptations. Keep going, verse 2. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and can, uh, cannot obtain. 
you fight and war. Now stop there because I think that's where the verse break should be. And I hope you realize, this is why I'm, this is helping us understand the context. I hope you realize this is one of the reasons that I talked about the fact that this is a war in yourself, not a war among brethren. Because he didn't just say to them, you're murderers. Right? He didn't say you guys are killing each other. But what they're doing is they're killing themselves. They're killing themselves spiritually because what they're doing, and in many he'll call them adulterers and adulteresses. And he's not talking physical. He's talking about their spiritual relationship with God that's being replaced by something else. Anything that gets placed on the throne that belongs to God is spiritual adultery. And so his challenge here is for you to recognize that through this temptation and the lust that you have to to get, you know, they have lost everything. Think about the account of Achan. I can understand Achan. We, we look at the accounts in the Bible from, from the perspective of history. So we get, we get uh, you know, we already know what's going to happen at the end when we read the beginning of it. So it's a different perspective. But when you think about what had been happening, 40 years they've been in that wilderness. 40 years. Their clothes have not worn out, but they're the same clothes. Their shoes have not worn out, but they're the same shoes. They have not had occupations that have provided them with wealth. They have not had homes that have provided them with stability. And now all of a sudden here they go to the city of Jericho that has immense wealth, and God knocks all the walls down, and he says, don't take anything, this first city's mine. That's the first fruits, right? And Achan didn't listen, did he? He took some of it, some good stuff. I get it. I get it. He was doing without. He thought a little bit of... A little bit would be good, right? Do you understand why he did it? And that's what he's talking about here. These people that are being persecuted and struggling, and they're saying, you know what? Look what I'm losing out on. These people out here in the world, anybody ever said, like Job, why is it that the wicked prosper? I want a little bit what, what they've got. And in doing so and taking myself to that place, I am killing who I am in my relationship to God. All right, now let's finish that verse, and I think this should connect with verse 3. So let's start the end of verse 2 and go through 3. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now the reason I think that fits in that verse instead of verse 2 is because I don't think God's saying you're killing people because of your lust, and if you just ask me, I'd give you what you're lusting for. I don't think that's what God's saying to you. No. What he's saying is what is what you're lusting for is what you really need. You need food, you need houses, you need family, you need protection, you need all those things, and you think that money or pleasure or whatever else of the world can provide it, and it won't provide it. Why do you not have peace in your life? Is it because you're different than everybody else, and so they make fun of you and things like that, and so you decide you're going to be like them and they'll quit making fun of you? That'll give you peace? Nope. What if, uh, you know, at work, they're, you're challenged to do things that aren't right, and you don't, so you get in trouble for it? So you just bend a little bit. Does that give you peace? Nope. Nope. If you want peace, what you've got to do is you've got to ask God for it, Right? You've got to trust God for it, and His way will provide you the peace that Paul would say passeth understanding. The world's never going to understand it, and it's going to be in the midst of conflict. So he says what you need to recognize is you're hanging on to these things of the world because you have needs, but God knows what you need. And if you'll ask God, God will provide for you. Not your lusts, 
but the things that you need to be to be happy, to be joyful, to be content. Keep going. Adulterers and adulteresses. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I didn't finish what I wanted to say about verse 3. Uh, this is a really simple application I want to make from this, but it goes to everything. Uh, one of the reasons that people, that Christians aren't blessed the way that we ought to be blessed or the way that we want to be blessed is because it's all about us. You know, when we read in the Scripture, Malachi, for example, and Malachi is, God through Malachi is challenging the people of God to, to give. He says, you've been robbing me. You've been robbing me. You've not been giving me what you should be giving me. So he says, you test me. Test me to see whether I will pour out of these windows more than you can handle. And people start saying, wow, God will bless me. If I give him a teaspoon, he's going to give me a whole barrel. So I'm going to give to God and he's going to pour out these, this barrel on me. Why are you giving it to him? Because you want the barrel. God talks about giving the seed, and then when we sow it, multiplying the seed. Does that mean that if if you really want to be wealthy, what you do is you give a whole bunch to God, and God will make you wealthy? No, and the problem is your desires. Your desires. What did he say? One of the reasons you don't have is because you ask for yourself. What he's challenging them to be is for others. How many times did Jesus pray for himself that you know of? Once, once. Let this cup pass from me. That's the only record that I know of of him doing it for himself. It's about humility, and he's going to get to that. All right, let's go back to verse 4 again. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. You've got to recognize, people don't come into this world an enemy of God. You don't. When you come into this world, you are a clean, pure soul. Now, eventually we reach an age where we know the difference between right and wrong. We know the, the, the understanding of, uh, of consequences, and we make choices. And God tells us through the pen of Paul that all have chosen at one point or another, once we've reached that age, to sin, right? So we understand that. What we don't understand sometimes is the fact that the problem with all of this is when we do that, we are actually walking away from God. We become His enemy. When we read in Romans chapter 5 about Paul talking about God's love and He died for us while we were yet sinners or enemies, well, the reason we became His enemies was because of us, not because of Him. So he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. That's spiritual again in this context. So he's saying, you are bending. What they do is act like everybody else. How would it look today? Well, how about this? Let's say they decided, I, I got an email, in fact, uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, wanting me to get you to go with me w- under my leadership to join with an ecumenical uh, uh, devotional uh, with all of the churches in Stewart. If I did that, I'd be a lot more popular in this town. If I did that, the city would look better on this church. If I did that, I would be leading you to be an enemy of God. Which should we do? I mean, is it not simple? 
Keep reading. This section here, I want to tell you before I read it, this is a very challenging little section because there are some complications in the translation. Uh, there are different ways in which this passage is, is recorded in the manuscripts, and so it's a little bit challenging to figure out what some of these mean. I'm going to tell you what I think based on the evidence that's there and the original language. He says, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, when you just read it straight up, he says, The Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. And this context, he's been talking about turning away as an enemy of God. And then he says the Spirit, and in my Bible, that word's capitalized. Is it in yours? Okay. But that's not the context of this war. This context of this war is my spirit, not God's, versus my flesh, not God's. Right? Isn't that where we started? The war that I have because I know what I ought to do, but I also know what I want to do with turning away and all of that. And now he turns around and says, what you have to recognize is the reason you're so miserable is because you're built, designed to want God. Why is it the case that there has never been a group of people anywhere in the world that have ever been discovered, living or past, that you haven't found uh, without finding that they are worshiping something? Every group that has ever been on the face of the earth that we have record of worshiped something. That, that doesn't make sense unless we have within us a desire for what made us. God created us in His image. That means our spirit is never complete without God being involved. So His challenge here is that the the reason this is such a battle for me, the reason this is such a war, is because I want to be right with my Maker, but my my sometimes my desires say I want to be I want to feel good and enjoy myself for this temporary time. And as long as those two battles are happening, I'm never going to be happy. But God gives grace to, what's the word he used? The humble. Have you ever thought of the fact that sin is an egotistical battle with God? It's where God says, look, I can make you happy, joyful, peaceful, content. I can give you the better life here and after here, and this is how you do it. And I say, you know what, God, I think I know better than you do. I think this will make me happier. I think this will make me happier. I think this is the right way to do it. And so I'm smarter than you are. And that's a battle, isn't it? And an enemy that comes back receives God's grace. God gives grace to those who are willing to say, you know what, God? I was wrong. I didn't know the right way. I'm not smarter than you. I can't do this on my own. God gives grace to the humble. Keep going. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, I think that's pretty simple, but I think sometimes we kind of misunderstand or misapply. You remember in Luke chapter 4, 
there's the description of after the baptism of Jesus, he's led out into the wilderness. And the text says he's led out to be tempted by the devil, right? So he spends 40 days out here in the wilderness fasting, and there's temptations that occur. And in each of those temptations, what the devil's trying to get him to do is uh, take a shortcut, right? He knows what God's trying to do, and so here's the shortcut. I can give you the kingdoms of the world, but you've got to bow down before me. And Jesus says, among the other temptations, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, right? And the text tells us that the devil left him for a season. See, that's the thing. As long as you're alive, there's hope, right? doesn't matter how far you've gone away from God. As long as you're alive, there's hope. But the other side of the coin is as long as you're alive, the devil's not going to quit. He, if he's going to battle for you, if you're struggling, if you're battling with him, that's because he doesn't have you. If you give up the fight, he's got you. But he's not going to say, well, he beat me today. I guess I'll go home. You know, so what he's saying here is that if we turn, see, God and the devil, this is like a magnet. This is the way the wording kind of describes it. It's like a magnet. You got God on one side and the devil on one side, and you got a magnet in between. And a magnet has two poles, right? A positive and a negative. And the positive draws and the negative repels. It's like God and Satan are always the same distance apart. And as you draw closer to God, the devil's getting further away. But the opposite's also true when you go this way. And so he says, resist the devil. That's that negative, that push him away kind of thing. The closer you get to God, the further you are away from the devil. But it's a never-ending battle. It's not, I finally won. I'm 51 years old. I finally won. I can give it up and retire now. It's not going to happen, ever. We're talking about Satan tempting Jesus right before his... His crucifixion. And in his crucifixion, right up to his death, he's being challenged. How do you know? Well, there are people standing there mocking him, aren't they? Mocking him. They, they threaten him. They, they say, you know, call down the angels if you're really who you claim to be. Keep reading. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now that connects back to this cleanse your hearts and your hands. Cleansing your hands is it's not about washing your hands. It's about your actions changing. You know what repentance is? It's not saying you're sorry. It's not feeling sorry. It's turning away. That's a changing of your heart that results in a changing of your actions, right? Cleanse your heart, cleanse your hands, and then you draw near to God. But you cannot do that until we sing the song. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. You cannot be exalted by God, forgiven by God, until you first let go of self. And you cannot win the battle that fights in our life unless you're humble enough to give up self. long as you're fighting with God... As long as you're trying to put in your life things that God says shouldn't be there, you are never going to reach the place where you want to reach. I don't care what you look like on the outside. Anybody ever come in this building feeling pretty low, whether it's emotional or spiritual or physical, feeling pretty low, and then somebody comes up and says, how are you doing today? And you say, oh, I'm doing good. But you're not. Never do that, do you? I'm telling you, people that are not right with God, and the outside, they may look okay, they may say they're okay, they're not okay. Because their soul, their spirit's not right with the one who made it. 
They're not humbling themselves before God. Keep going. Verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? And that sounds, again, a little bit complex, and you have a problem with the context because you know, I, I show you each one of these points are individual points, but they have the same overall context about this battle with ourselves. You know, who is it that is the lawgiver? Me? God's the lawgiver, right? In the old law, who gave it to him? God did. The new covenant, who gave it to us? God did. God gave the law. I cannot put myself in a position where I put myself above God and say, listen, I know this is what he said, but that's not what I want. You know that if you want to live in sin, you will, you, if you want to do it, you'll find somebody and can find somebody that will tell you it's okay. Whatever it is, that somebody will tell you it's okay. And that will make you feel better, won't it? Except does it make it okay? No. And, and, and I can't do it. People, it happens. People come to me and say, let's talk about this. And I'll talk about it. They'll say, but isn't there something we could do about this? I'm not the judge. I, I had a young man call me. He had been, this is 25 years ago. And he said he wanted me to talk to his parents. He was living in sin. And his parents had uh, basically cut him off. And he said, I want you to go talk to my parents and have them accept me. And I said, I can't do that. And what does it change if they do accept you? Does that make everything okay? They're not the lawgiver. They're not the judge. We don't get the ability to tell somebody else that they can, that they can ignore God. And we can't do it with ourselves either. Keep going. Now he's got another, uh, another section. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city... Spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Let's stop there a second. Okay. Is he, is he uh, discouraging planning? How do you know? How do you know he's not? Is there anywhere else in the Bible that God talks about it? Doesn't Jesus talk about nobody builds a house unless they have considered the cost? That's planning. That's planning. Not only that, when Galatians chapter 4, when God is talking about, through the pen of Paul, what happened to get to this place where the tutor brought about the fulfillment of it, he says, when the fullness of time had come, that's a whole bunch of pieces of planning that got put into place by God to bring about not only a nation and a law, but a, a forerunner and then a Messiah, right? All that was, pe- that was in pieces. And God brought each of those. So it's, this is not a... This is not an aversion to planning. It's not God saying we shouldn't be planning people. What he says is, you people who say in, a, in, a, in the future, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to live there for a year and, and all of this is connected to what I'm going to do physically, I need to listen. That's what he says. I need to listen. And here's why. What's your life? Well, let's finish the, the next sentence. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. If I am living today for my plans for tomorrow, what if tomorrow doesn't get here? Yeah, I, I, uh, 
I don't want to give you bad financial advice, but I remember when I was younger and didn't put any money away. Now I'm thinking that was probably a bad idea, right? Money away for retirement. But when you're 20 years old, what do you think? I'm going to live forever. i got plenty of time. But there's also another side of that. You think, why put it away for then? I might not even live that long. Might as well use it now, right? Okay? That's what he's saying. He said, when you're planning, when you put all of your intention into what you're going to do, you better recognize that you don't know if you're going to even make it that long. Your life on this earth, it's just like a, that word actually is talking about being a puff of steam. It's there. It has a, it has a, an existence, it has an intensity, and then it's gone, right? Keep going. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, what you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And this is funny to me because what happens with this is we've learned to, say, we've learned to quote the words. So we'll say, uh, I'll see you Wednesday night if the Lord wills. Well, the Lord wills for us to be here on Wednesday night. Yeah. Sunday morning we say, if it's your will, bring us back tonight. Are you kidding me in that God's will? If it's his will. But we quote the words. We say, I'm going to graduate from college next year if it's God's will. This is not about a phrase. This is about a lifestyle. This is about me living my life Always connected to God. Every day connected to God. Not saying the rich man. I've got all this wealth. I don't have enough barns. Guess what? I'll build bigger barns. I'll store it up and then I'll live many years happy, kick back. And God says, guess what? You're going to die tonight. What what all that wealth do for you? Wasn't anything wrong with it. What was wrong with it? He said he forgot God. So if all of your planning is without God... What if you don't get there? How many times do you suppose people have said, when I get older, I'll be faithful. When I get my family established, I'll be faithful. When I get my career settled, I'll be faithful. What if that never happens? How many of you, this is me, how many of you say in your life, if I can get through this week, next week's going to be easier? And I've learned, next week is never easier. There's always something, right? Okay, so if you live your life without God, eventually you're going to run out of time. Putting it off, putting it off, yep. Yep, putting off your relationship with God because of all the things you want in the world. Nothing wrong with trying to progress in life, but God's got to be there in the first place. Okay, let's finish it up. But now, this is what they're doing instead of putting God in their plans. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. What do you mean they're boasting in their arrogance? I don't need God. I got this under control. You don't even have to say the words. How many men? Again, this is a weakness. This is one of my weaknesses. How many men have to have everything under control? You know when I panic? You know when I worry? It's when something's happening that I can't fix, that I can't control. When it's something that I can't control that's beyond my ability to control, that's hard for me. I fix things. I, my kids, they get in trouble, I fix them. They're, they're, they're hurting, I fix them. But sometimes you can't fix them. 
And when you can't fix them, what you realize is you're not God. You're not God. So the opposite needs to be, I need to know that I need him today and tomorrow and every day in the future. So he's got to be connected to all of my plans. I've got to quit boasting about my life, being my life, and give my life to him. And then he says, and I think this covers the whole chapter, probably the whole book. Therefore, if you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, what is it? Yeah, see, sometimes we look at sins as the things that we do. We talk about what God says not to do. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do this. So we've got a whole list of rules that we have to avoid. All these things we shall not do, right? Except for the thing is, it's not about what we shall not do. It's about what God wants us to become. And in order to become that, there are things that have to go away. But there are also things that have to show up. And so if we know what God wants us to be and how he wants us to be it, and we choose not to do it, we've gone back to that magnet and we've turned it over where our draw is toward Satan instead of toward God. Okay, I thought I'd quit earlier than this, but i give you two minutes. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight to study your word, and we're so thankful for the power in this book to help us in a practical way to live our Christianity, to honor you, glorify you in this world. Help us, Father, to work together. Help us, Father, to strengthen and encourage one another in our own battles and that we can always shine your light into this world. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.